Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams. I'll be your co-host of the session. I'm very happy to be here today with Jared Side. Welcome, Jared. Thank you so much for being part of the summit. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you, John. It's great to be here with you. Well, I'm going to read from your bio to familiarize our audience with you and your work, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. How's that sound? Sounds good. Good. Jared Side is author of the book, where Compassion Begins, Foundational Practices to Enhance Mindfulness, Attention, and Listening from the Heart. He is the founder and executive director of Center for Counsel, a nonprofit organization that trains groups and individuals to promote wellness and resiliency, to foster compassion, and build community. Jared has developed and shepherded Counsel for Insight, Compassion, and Resilience, an award-winning transformational insight and accountability-oriented rehabilitation program for incarcerated populations, as well as programs to promote health, relationality, and compassion amongst law enforcement officers, to address burnout and dysregulation amongst physicians and nurses, to help build positive organizational culture within public and private companies, as well as other mindfulness and council-based programs to support and resource impacted communities and emerging leaders. Jared has led trainings and retreats focusing on compassion, reconciliation, and community building throughout the United States, as well as in Poland, Rwanda, France, Colombia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Okay, uh, amazing work. Thanks so much again for joining us, Jared. So let me start with this. The prison program Center for Council offers is called Council for Insight, Compassion, and Resilience. Describe for us, please, what the program looks like and what do you see participants getting out of it? Mm. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, that, that's a mouthful. Center for Council has um, you know, kind of worked in this field where it's very difficult to kind of reduce what we do um, to an elevator pitch. It has been our sort of bane of our existence for some time. Council for Insight, Compassion, and Resilience uh, is named for what it does rather than where we do it or who we serve. Um, I think that many in the audience will be familiar with the practice of council. Um, to kind of summarize it or to make it simple, I think council um, is a practice of coming together in a good way, usually in a circle, um, setting aside judgment and agenda offering regard, listening from the heart, and uh, sharing authentically what is alive and true in the moment. Um, the CICR program in prisons is built on the foundation of council and offers uh, very um, practical tools for building self-awareness and self-regulation um, that help participants cultivate introspection, um, insight, emotional intelligence, um, and the capacity for more skillful communication, which I believe leads to more respectful and wholesome relationships. Uh, and that relationality is, I think, where we find uh, the potential to really shift culture 
in a big way. Um, participants in the program in prison um, learn and practice these very concrete tools for uh, monitoring their own thoughts and responses while respectfully taking turns, um, speaking and being heard, um, being listened to. I think the process helps to reinforce um, deeper insight, uh, focuses emotions and expression in a uh, authentic and a contained way. Um, we have had to talk about the outcomes in very um, down-to-earth ways as a result of uh, our work with departments of correction, police departments, boards of education, etc. And so we have worked with uh, evaluators, uh, beginning with the RAND Corporation, which was a, a grant that I started with some years ago, and moving into a partnership with UCLA, in which we look at uh, very concrete measures uh, qualitatively and quantitatively, and more recently, biometric measures, which I'm blown away about. I'm happy to talk about this more, which is really, I think, very exciting. But these have consistently demonstrated the impact of participation in these programs in prison, uh, leading to reductions in anger and aggression and hostility, uh, improving communication skills, uh, reinforcing respectful listening, um, fostering pro-social uh, perspectives and attitudes, uh, building cooperation and respect and uh, pro-social peer group activity. And I think fundamentally increasing, I would say, uh, we've got trust, confidence, resilience, um, capacity for reflection, insight, and accountability. And so we have validated academic scales in which we have measured these and we have demonstrated this to folks who we want to continue to provide us with grant funding so that while we understand what it means to be with others in this authentic way and to allow ourselves to bear witness to the emergent version of ourselves, we've also got specific deliverables that relate to what they call criminogenic factors or dynamic criminogenic factors, those that can change rather than those that are fixed. And in doing this, I think we've created uh, resources for folks to start the next chapter of their lives in a good way. And we can continue to demonstrate that and, and hopefully continue to work our way into systems that need that kind of quote-unquote proof. Wow. It was just so wonderful to get the research and sort of get that validation after you have seen it and been there and been with all of those folks and through those transformations. So can you give us just a little bit of a window into what would a session look like? Like, first of all, I'm going to ask you, what are the determinants on the, the folks who can actually enter the program? So there, so we're talking about this particular program is in the California state prison system, right? So um, I'm familiar with the California county jails, and I know that the county jails are actually, at this point, um, able to, they're not really very well able to, but sometimes they are assigned um, um, custody of up to 10 years for people who are convicted of crimes in the state of California. So they can spend as many as 10 years in a county jail. It's a sad thing because they're obviously not built to do that. But when they folks do get to California state prisons, um, how is it that, that uh, you're able to put this group together? What, what, are, what is their sort of, what is their path to coming into this program? Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned jails. We're um, in the process of starting up a couple of jail-based programs because we feel like it's really important to have exposure to the possibility of this kind of work, to viewing incarceration 
as an opportunity for some kind of growth. Obviously, not something one would choose, but folks who are in jail and, and are kind of figuring out what, what the next few years are going to look like, uh, we are introducing that so that when they arrive, um, they will find, depending upon where they are transferred to, um, a variety of programs they can sign up for. Every prison, as you know, I'm sure very well, in CDCR has a completely different culture and a different um, appreciation of programming. Some are very pro-programming. Some, it's really hard to really get buy-in to create these programs in a good way to make sure that participants are able to sign up, that they understand what they're signing up for, and that they can navigate their work schedule and their release schedule so they can actually show up on a regular basis. But in the ideal situation and in situations we've been able to create in now 28 of the 34 operating prisons, we've got another four coming up next year, um, we offer the opportunity for folks to have a glimpse into what is possible in uh, learning this um, methodology and curriculum and then practicing counsel on a regular basis in a group setting um, for um, a period of a, about 90 minutes to two hours a week, every week, um, an initial six months and then the opportunity to, to continue with this group as long as one chooses to, uh, electing to be a participant in this what they call self-help program. Uh, we are um, grateful to have had the opportunity to produce a bunch of videos now and to have the capacity to send people into prisons to talk about what it is we're doing and then demonstrate a council and invite folks to have a taste of that. And if it resonates, and it often does, folks sign up for the program, the CICR program. When they sign up, they sign up to attend a pretty intensive two-day training usually a Saturday and a Sunday, which means they're not going to family visits. They're not, you know, on work schedule. They need to be there. And we need to have, obviously, custody needs to cooperate and get them cleared for that. And then subsequently, once a week, they meet in this group that has been trained and self-facilitate. Uh, we have a, a series of assignments that last for the first six months. And then we give them some guidelines for self-facilitating councils in which the real learning unfolds. The two days is a very intensive introduction to the practice of counsel. Uh, it is experiential, but there's a great deal of pedagogy and a lot of teaching around what's happening in our autonomic nervous system, what it means to, you know, um, to live in a constant sympathetically aroused state and, and what it means to slow down, to take a backward step, to really be present and bear witness to what's coming up for us and in others and the benefits of that and understand it a little scientifically, but then practice different forms. Uh, so after these two days of intensive training, the group is um, empowered to create a community of practice that will meet regularly. One of the things we've been able to do over the pandemic is to create that book. We actually created the first version of the book where Compassion Begins, as in the bottom it says, a handbook for incarcerated persons. And this is how we built this book. It was with funds that were allocated for us to go into prisons, and then when we were told we couldn't go into prisons. They told us to give the money back. And we said, we're not going to give the money back. We need to do something else. So we produced the book, um, which supports folks after their training. We also have this version of it. So the blue version of it is the one that we wanted to write for general audiences. So we were able to do that during the last two years. But with this book and with weekly um, guidance, uh, folks get together and um, create a space to show up in that kind of authentic way. They facilitate on a rotating basis with different individuals 
facilitating each week. And our trainers return after a couple of months. We usually come back two or three times during the first three months to witness what, what's up, to answer questions, to troubleshoot, to maybe provide a little extra training, some reminders, and to kind of watch the group evolve in the practice of counsel. Um, it is a practice that they are given this space, hopefully, you know, a classroom or a, the chapel or a certain space uh, on a regular basis. But it's also a practice that they're taking into their lives with their cellies, with, you know, folks on the yard, often in family visits, they will invite their family into a council. Um, and so we're hearing reports back about how it is the things that they're learning are showing up in their life outside of the actual formal official council. Um, and hopefully this will set the stage for a practice that um, they have with them and carry with them through this transition into um, returning back into society and beginning the next chapter of their lives. And it has been extraordinary to see how many go to board and really embody this speaking and listening from the heart, this um, capacity to uh, create compassionate kind of communication and, and relationships and find themselves with grants of parole and find themselves coming back. Those who come back to Los Angeles, hopefully all of them touch base with us. They are invited into everything we do in Los Angeles for free workshops and trainings and programs and internships. And many wind up working for us on staff. Um, we have recently created a grant that focuses specifically on reentry. So at the end of the program inside prison, you can join up our reentry program for this warm handoff, which combines case management and a community of practice outside, and then invitation to be part of uh, a leadership training where those individuals who found this to be of value when they were inside and in their process of coming home um, are trained up to have the skills to work with us, bringing the program to uh, system impacted folks in community. Uh, for those who can get back into facilities, we take them back with us. And again, it's case by case. And when you have a cooperative warden, you can sometimes convince them to allow somebody to come back in and co-lead a training. Um, but in all of the different places that we are supporting folks in learning counsel and seeing the value um, of it as a resource for transformation, as a skillful means of being with suffering and with easing suffering, I think uh, there is a, a, a spark that ignites in these council groups that continue. Um, and the ripples are extraordinary, both in terms of what happens on the yard um, and also what happens as folks get out. And I'll just say one more thing that um, I got to go back to Ironwood um, after I hadn't been there for about six years. We started a program, I guess, in 2014 or 2015. And I got to go back for the first time after we had launched it, our grant had run out. And I was um, invited into the group that continues to this day and the council began, and it was led by uh, gentlemen who had been taught by people who had been taught by those who had been taught by people that we trained. So it had gone on four generations, and it had become their own practice, which was so moving and beautiful. Um, I was so grateful to see what it had kind of grown into and to offer, you know, whatever little bits I could here and there, new games or icebreakers or ways to describe it to newcomers. But it sustains itself inside the prisons and provides this resource that not only affects the way folks experience incarceration and their own transformation, but also encourages them to um, leave with some tools and in many cases come back and want to continue this work on the outside. 
So clearly this program that you developed and designed and, has, and have been bringing in, um, not only are you able to, to train, and as you say, empower, I was very much struck by the, you know, this whole approach of empowering individuals to be able to carry on this community practice. Um, and then you touch back in, if the program is underway and the funding is in place and you have folks who are, are able to continue on, your trainers or other facilitators will come and check back in in as long as three months. And these, these individuals may have been meeting once a week for 12, up to 12 sessions before they're sort of touched again by your, by your people. So this is a, obviously a very thorough training you do in the two weeks. Well, fortunately, we've got the book now that supports folks when they have questions in a week to week basis. Uh, we like to come back, you know, no, no more than six to eight weeks before we come back for the first time. You know, it's really about the grant funding. You know, we've got to send people in who are, you know, they're not volunteers. They're, they're folks who are well trained and get paid to, to do this work for us. So when they go back in, there's a cost to that. And as we kind of develop more resources, we send more people more often to places to keep these groups going. And then, you know, as I said, the climate at each one of these prison sites really determines how much encouragement these groups have to keep going. Some find it very difficult to, you know, they, they get released from their cell, you know, with like 20 minutes left of the two hours because the correctional officers weren't really coordinating this. In other cases, we have incredible support where folks are providing all kinds of resources and, and helping the group to really uh, thrive. Uh, it's a great variety. We have to face each one, um, you know, as we encounter it. I've been told walking into some of these trainings um, by sergeants, don't shake their hand, don't get close to them, you know, don't be overly familiar. And, you know, I, I need to presence that. My my inclination would be, you know, to be able to to treat folks as other human beings, but in this setting and with this particular climate with the correctional officers. This is what I've been told. And I'm going to work with that because I want to be here. But there are, there are very different environments we work within. I think the the tools that we teach give folks an opportunity to really make this their own, to really feel confident being facilitators of this work. You know, the word facilitator doesn't mean you're a leader or the director. It means you're just making it easy in the, in the Latin sense. You're making it easy for this practice to unfold, whether it's intimately with your cellmate or it's, you know, or, or, or family visit or it's you know more formally in something you've planned to do with the group when it meets once a week. It's it's a skill that they um, are are learning. It's a strength and a muscle that they are growing, and um, you know hopefully it, it will serve them in, on a day to day basis and for the rest of their lives. I think for those of us in the audience who who do go into incarcerated environments, I really appreciate the way you're explaining the need for patience and flexibility within those environments and understanding of, of our place when we're there and um, and that we're actually being granted quite a uh, quite a gift to be able to, to go into a situation where there's a whole lot of energy behind um, keeping people safe and keeping people in oops, whatever level of control they're being kept in. So um, I, I think that's I think that's helpful for folks are bringing any kind of programming into prison, this understanding that we really need to learn our patience and mm -hmm. to be flexible and to, um, as we can be as non-judgmental about it and know that everybody is, everybody's doing what they can. And, and, you know, 
when I go to jail, I never really think anybody's having the best day of their life. You know, nobody's having a real good day when they're, for whatever reason, they're in there, whether they're getting a paycheck or, or not. But I think, you know, we're, we're wanting to see certain results. We're wanting to see folks behave in a certain kind of way. That's the agenda. Nobody wants an unsafe environment, whether it's on the yard or when folks are moving through and eventually coming home and becoming your neighbors. You know, empathy is, you know, is something that you want to see grown. And I think we understand now that empathy for others develops as a result of first becoming aware of our own physical, emotional, and mental states. Um, and um, there are trainings that build the capacity to increase that awareness. And when we work with our own inner experience of suffering, both physical and emotional, spiritual and mental, we develop a greater capacity and ability to sense and understand others' distress. And I think that is something, you know, you look at the Mathieu Ricard work and all the extraordinary kind of understanding we have now the way brains function, this is valuable training. What we're doing is not just, you know, as some folks say, you know, we often get hit with that. You're just a hug a thug that goes in and tries to, you know, be nice to, you know, to, to make nice with, with uh, thugs. And it's really not about that. It's about building skills and starting in a way that helps folks resource themselves such that they can be more productive um, you know, agents of change, both in terms of keeping things safe on the yard, but also in terms of what they will do when they go home. And that's an argument that I have a lot. It's a conversation that I think folks can understand that, you know, we're not just doing this, you know, um, in in a sort of um, Pollyanna-ish kind of let's make, you know, nice with folks who are, you know, not really, uh, you know, sincere. This is about uh, really taking the time to build some skills, starting with the, you know, what's going on inside us and cultivating some literacy and understanding of that. Such well, that let me ask you to reflect then, because I, I have done some amount of council work, a little bit of amount, and some of it's tough. Mm-hmm. Some of it's personally uh, challenging. I have found that I have gone through uh, many different emotions within a council setting, and um, some are quite joyful and some are quite painful, mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of a whole raft. And there's, well, I mean, there can be preconceptions of what's going on in prisons, and there's the reality that these are individuals who have a, a lot of suffering and, and uh, a pain and anguish uh, within their daily life, and, and it's not uncommon throughout their in- entire life. So. I'd like to just kind of hear some reflections on on how are people holding that, holding that much, like allowing, you're really encouraging it and creating that environment and, and supporting people to really get in touch with real stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, there's a skillfulness that we need to cultivate. You know, I think that in understanding compassion, um, you know, compassion is a virtue, but it's also a practice. Compassion is not, you know, sympathy or empathy. I mean, it is some of both, but it is not either of those things. It's not, um, it's not just about how we feel, but it's about what we do, how we behave. Um, I think that compassion is that thing that requires that we step up and um, become skillful and build a muscle. And I think it winds up as the um, kind of critical component in weaving social fabric uh, through the actions and the relationships that uh, we create. So this is a given. This is not about, you know, 
behaving nicely. It's not about, you know, hugging everybody or holding hands and, and, you know, singing Kumbaya as they often deride us as, you know, going in to do this is about really bearing witness to some really deep suffering and building a capacity to do that is critical. I, you know, I, I have the, the great honor of, of spending two years studying with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax in, in the uh, chaplaincy program at Upaya. And uh, Roshi Joan um, speaks about how compassion, while it is not trainable per se, is composed of non-compassion elements that are trainable, that you can train in. And so as you break these down and you understand that, you know, there is a tension and attunement, and that is a skill set that we can train to. There is insight and intention. There's um, embodiment and engagement and all of these things like going out onto the yard and doing, you know, bicep curls to build your muscles and sit-ups and things. These are muscles that are built. These are capacities that increase as a result of practice. And so I think when we look at it this way, we can understand that the things we're doing as we uh, strengthen our capacity to uh, bear witness are going to be valuable in encounters that we face, uh, again, both within the world of you know, the prison setting and also outside. And I think that council is an environment in which we see, you know, like the weightlifters, you know, some dynamic tension and resistance uh, that is um, helping us build capacity to face some hard stuff. And so when we talk about what council is doing and we understand the importance of you know, becoming aware of one's mental and emotional state, you know, hearing and noticing uh, others in council, finding words to articulate the grief, the pain, the suffering. You know, there are guys in council who say, I've never seen a man cry like that. And here in council, I'm seeing tears and I understand this is related to grief, but I never experienced that when something is really hurting, you can cry and it's not terrible. You know, you can express things in a way that are authentic um, and you're not going to fall apart. Learning that it's possible to explore that, um, those, those unfamiliar states, to take time to slow down and bear witness in this way and create an intimacy um, with these very complicated sensations, very difficult to hold um, stirrings that maybe have not been reinforced anywhere in your life and are sort of normed in council as allowable and not judged, this is unique and it's not comfortable. In fact, it is by design outside of the comfort zone for folks. Um, and then, you know, what it means to really be encouraged in real time to spontaneously um, express whatever emergent insights and sensations and experiences and shifts maybe that are arising within one. Um, I think it's the capacity to embody our, you know, authentic humanness. That's where it's at. And a lot of folks have really resisted that and have acted out in other ways. So sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard to hold. And being able to create a container that can hold that to witness and to acknowledge it um, without having to agree or disagree or make fun of something or have a stance about something or say, oh, that's not me. That's you. You know, this is to, 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 to come up with a, you know, with a opinion about everything that's expressed by others, but to just bear witness in this way creates endless possibilities. But it requires of us that we're able to hold some difficult stuff. Mm -hmm. It requires that we create this container 
that's going to be, you know, a sort of a cauldron, you know, where we're creating a crucible and it's going to get hot. And if it's not a good container, it's going to be um, leaky and difficult to hold. So part of why we really start with a really strong training and what it means to create a container, to understand liminality, to step in in a way with intention to practice together because we're going to need this space uh, is really critical. And it's important to understand when new people, when newcomers kind of roll in, they need to be really intentional intentional about what they're stepping into. Because you're right, it can be a really difficult place to be. But I think ultimately, it's some extraordinarily valuable training in how to have the capacity to be with suffering, uh, which we encounter all over, even though we may not have the vocabulary or literacy around what to do with it. And, and from what I, what I heard, um, you're speaking very much about a, a personal experience, mm-hmm. right? You talked about an intimacy and becoming intimate with with <clears throat> unfamiliar states, unfamiliar emotional experiences, and all that that entails, and also becoming intimate with others going through that experience. So I, I guess just to, how do you sort of prime that crucible in terms of of there may be a tendency to want to rescue or there may be a tendency to just want to block it out. Right. There can be a t- like, I just don't, I can't hear anymore from any of these other guys, you know, or it's like, gee, I, I, I would like to give them a hug, you know, but that's not what's going on. Right. You're holding your ground. Mm-hmm. You're bearing witness. So can you just give us a little insights there? That's where it's at, John. I mean, this is about, Strong back, soft front. You know, how do we show up in a good way to stuff that's really very um, disorienting? And it is why the folks who go in to train in this program for us are all certified council trainers who've gone through a lot of training, who have really had to confront shadow, who've gotten to the edge and have seen the possibilities of it going south quick. Um, again, Roshi Jones' book, Standing at the Edge, and what the five states are that she talks about um, that we need to become super clear about and practiced in navigating is critical work. And it's integrated into you know, our curriculum for working with counsel because it is very easy to fall into rescuing or running away. I think when we notice in ourselves the sympathetic arousal, the the, the real human response of fight, flight, freeze, these things that we do when we're sympathetically aroused, we can recognize that, okay, I'm not discerning. My prefrontal cortex is not working the way I want it to because of the sympathetic arousal. How do I activate a parasympathetic response? What sorts of things by breathing, by bearing witness, by scanning the environment, by kind of having a a round of counsel in which we can come back into real-time direct experience? How can we bring us back to a place where we can be productive and not shut down? And this is true for facilitators and those learning to be counsel trainers, as well as every counsel session we encounter. You know, the, the, the practice of counsel is what teaches counsel, and our facilitating and offering to others is our own opportunity to grow in this practice as well. So there isn't a lot of separation between how one is trained in counsel and how one experiences counsel coming in to a counsel session. I will say that in in the jail setting, we're really focused on offering an experience of counsel and information. So folks can take that into a more long-term program inside prisons. In prisons, it's about really empowering individuals to become facilitators to become practitioners and to carry this work into their lives. 
noting the places where things get tough, where they want to shut down, where they want to run away, where they are so sympathetically aroused that they can't discern, they can't function. You know, they, they have a vague notion of, well, you're supposed to count to 10 and take a breath. Well, you know, as, as we know that there's so much more to training in the autonomic nervous system that is so valuable. And those pieces are you know, offered in the book and also in the council training such that folks can work with that tendency, recognizing it in themselves and in others in the circle, and then doing something about it so as to create a more coherent experience individually and collectively. And, and I'll just say I'm, I'm a huge fan of heart math. Um, my wife is actually a, a physician and a heart math facilitator. Um, there is some extraordinarily powerful biometric measurement of heart rate variability coherence now, mm -hmm. which is a lot easier to capture than cortisol sampling and other things that folks have had to rely on, you know, functional MRIs and such through a watch or a ring or a wearable. My wife has actually used little clip-ons on people's fingers in mm -hmm. council. You can really see in real time how it is that you are shifting your heart rate variability into a coherent flow by gratitude practice, by bearing witness, by breathing exercises, by being in council. And then when you step out of that, how you become incoherent. And we understand that that reading correlates with greater health, not just the state, but the trait. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that there are things we can do that are changing your physiology that exist internally in terms of your own coherence, but also exist in the full group. So a group can entrain to become coherent, affecting one another in a way that becomes a really powerful force, whether it's an organization or a police unit or a group inside a prison or in a school classroom, such that we understand what I'm doing to create this coherence internally is also affecting the coherence of this group and how group practice can actually have a profound impact on how we do our work with each other and with those we interact with. So I think there's an enormous amount happening. And I think, you know, as we become more um, engaged in studying this practice and learning about it, there's a whole lot we have to offer in, in training uh, more and more folks in how to enter into this wonderful journey. Well, I love that you have already talked about how this is becoming sort of more holistic and, and rounded into re-entry, which is, of course, an extremely challenging time for folks coming out of the incarcerated state, going into re-entry. I have a, a, a few colleagues who do a lot of work on re-entry, and it's, it's, it's a very challenging time in people's lives, right? And I was fortunate to meet um, one of the young men who, who came out who'd been working with you in council for a number of years in there, and he was, he was solid. And he was uh, one of the folks you were able to employ. Uh, in your nonprofit, and uh, he really seemed to be thriving. But can you tell us just a little bit, because what I also heard you describing clearly was community you're, and culture. You're, you're really talking about how these interactions as a group, is it, that is the culture. There's that culture, and then that culture is going to trickle out and it's going to spread out. And when we're talking about the work that you're doing with law enforcement, we know that you're doing work with, with corrections, when you're doing work with uh, in, in corporate and nonprofit settings, culture can be pretty solid, and culture is, of course, malleable. And um, I, I guess I'd like to hear sort of some of your thoughts about 
like our whole community. We've got a we got a big old country here. We've got a big old world here. And um, we've got places we could go. You know, we've got directions we could go. And I think that you're pointing us in a really great direction. So please. Yeah, I think um, we've been thinking a great deal about is what is the impact of this work. And so we've begun this initiative called Beyond Us and Them, which is really the impact of this work. What is it to go beyond that thinking? It's, you know, relative that it's... Uh, touching on that beautiful Rumi poem, The Great Wagon. Um, what is that field beyond, you know, right and wrong, us and them, Republican and Democrat, you know, cop and incarcerated person? What do we What do we understand to be uh, that place where we reside together and we build culture together? What happens when we move beyond othering so that we can create space to um, be curious and open-hearted about the story of somebody unfamiliar. We don't just label and um, judge to be somehow less than and unworthy of listening. You know, when when my when my MSNBC somehow flips to Fox News and I just can't bear to hear the others or the same the other way. When Fox News, if you know folks are are fans, all of a sudden get to hear Rachel Maddow and and their heads explode. You know, what does it mean to be with those things that seem to be um, not just uh, you know, diverse opinions, but wrong. That <laughs> you're wrong, and I and I and and you and I cannot be with you in the same space. And I say this to preface something that happened to me. And I, I mentioned this to you earlier, John. I think um, I remember being inside uh, a level four uh, GP yard um, doing a program, a general population, very rough, violent place. We had a beautiful council training with 22 or 23 incarcerated folks. Um, most of them lifers, but something had really opened and turned. The vulnerability, the courage to really go to a deep place was so beautiful and tender. And I remember on day two, there was an incident on the yard, caused a commotion, and the correctional officers came just like ferociously barging into this room, screaming and yelling and invective and nasty and racist. And it was really intense. There was so much anger and outrage and controlled us. Those folks had to get on the floor. They went back to cells. We had to go out. You know, it was a, it was a pretty intense moment. Somebody had been stabbed pretty viciously and things were, you know, opening up on the yard. So that had to happen. But I was so angry. I was so upset. It just felt like these beasts, these inhumane, non-compassionate entities had come in and destroyed something beautiful. And, and I remember feeling kind of pulled to that and then sort of taking a step back and recognizing, now, hold on a second, what am I seeing here? What am I feeling here? The deep fear and suffering and um, overwhelm in those individuals was something I couldn't see at first, but it got me really curious about what happens when you are so upset and have only the tool of yelling and screaming and, and controlling. And it, it began an investigation for me into what is going on here and into the immense suffering, the, the profound suffering that many folks experience within the correctional system, the, 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 the dehumanizing, dysfunctional correctional system, and how it's experienced by correctional officers who have, you know, suicidality that's off the chart, who have, you know, um, rates of stress-related illness that are killing them. At, it's much, much faster than most of the population. And this extends to law enforcement as well. In investigating this and in seeing what stressors do to folks who don't have resources, I sort of realized something about this environment in which we work, the culture here. And it's the culture of everyone touched by incarceration and 
everyone is touched by incarceration. Whether you're driving up the five freeway and you see something out there that looks like it's a Costco or a warehouse and you turn a blind eye, or you're going into the prisons as, as you do, and I do and many others do to, to really be with this suffering, we're all impacted by this. And we all have to understand our part and how important it is for us to be practicing. And it led us to understand that while I would never invite these correctional officers to come sit in that circle, it would make it unsafe for the incarcerated folks as well as for the officers, there was a, a real deep desire for them to find their way back to health. Mm-hmm. And so we created a program based on sort of officer wellness, uh, self-awareness, self-regulation, um, understanding how it is that we can um, recognize our relationship to the stressors, what maladaptive um, responses to stress look like, why alcoholism and domestic violence and oversexuality and all kinds of things are a plague that are destroying families there, how it is that officers are dying in their 50s, 57, 58, how it is that the norm is for folks to be suffering so deeply. But that wasn't what our organization was doing. That wasn't what a lot of organizations working with incarcerated folks were doing. And I realized it was a miss. So for us, we really turned towards how it is we can create resources so that officers can bring compassion to their own journey, to relationships with the other at work and at home, and to the communities that they protect and serve. That this needs to start upstream in order for there to be results downstream that are meaningful. And so we created and constructed a program that really spoke in the language of law enforcement to them based on counsel. You know, we actually called them counsel huddles because they were much more comfortable huddling up than getting into counsel. But um, the huddles became something that were so, um, such a relief to law enforcement officers. We taught them all about the autonomic nervous system and what it is that's happening stress-wise. And then we gave them the opportunity in a peer-to-peer setting to have these structured conversations, facilitated conversations, and the way they have taken to the council huddles. And, you know, we did seven cohorts of LAPD officers, about 25 each. We've done work with the uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons and the Metropolitan Detention, Detention Center in LA, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And we're now working with the Department of Justice in taking what incredible results we're finding and making them more accessible, more broadly to law enforcement. We don't talk about it the way we talk about the work we do with incarcerated folks, but it's the same work. It's just translated for um, a language that can receive it well, such that we come out of the end of this able to come together in community. And when we weave together graduates of the work that we've done in prison in the CICR program and graduates of the a police program, which is actually called POWER. It's Peace Officer Wellness, Empathy, and Resilience. But we say POWER because it's easier to go to your POWER training than your wellness, empathy, and resilience training. Um, when they reach the end of this program, the way they meet the other is extraordinary. It is something you could not imagine seeing if you had met these folks at the very beginning of the process. The vocabulary that they're introduced to and that they find ways to integrate into their own life how they confront, you know, challenges in a sort of safe space with others who are also on the job in ways they're navigating issues with their families and then ultimately beginning to bridge with community. Uh, the the literacy and the skillfulness that develops in many of these folks um, when woven with the folks that are coming out of prison create the potential for extraordinary um, transformation on a cultural, very basic and profound cultural level. It's reweaving the um, torn 
uh, threads of community. And it happens in an extraordinary way. I think that this Beyond Us and Them initiative is really pointing for us. And it's at, you know, beyondusandthem.org is our new, we're going to move into that initiative from Center for Council. Because I think while council is the heart of this, where we go is a culture where we go beyond us and them. So the more groups we can work with, whether they're law enforcement, incarcerated folks, and folks in the reentry process, educators, healthcare workers, and business folks, the more we can sort of plant these seeds and cultivate these practices, the more opportunity we'll have to weave together in a way that creates these culture changes that I think are so critically important. Well, I, I'm going to anticipate you're going to have a whole lot of people jumping in there with you. I sure hope so. We can certainly use it. We can certainly use it. I welcome it. We've, we've, we've had a, a, a wonderful conversation and we're coming close to you. And I wonder if you'd be willing to, to offer us just a, a, like a three-minute practice of some kind. Something that you'd like to leave us with. Whatever you're comfortable with. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that we learn as we practice counsel is an ability to um, shift the way we speak and listen to one another. Um, so I would um, invite anybody who's interested to come join us online. We have these social connection councils that folks can join for 90 minutes. Um, I think the practice of listening and speaking from the heart is something that one can contain in a, even in a space like Zoom, um, even in correspondence courses that we've done, but certainly in council groups. And I think in every instance, it's really important for us to settle ourselves, to really use our breath, use our awareness to really um, notice the way we are present uh, to ourselves and to that which is around us, um, recognizing the places where all we believe to be us, all the bits and pieces are meeting everything that feels like not us, you know, the air in the room, you know, the light that is um, kind of constricting our pupils, the temperature in the room, the way in which we're recognizing how it is we're showing up. As we become more mindful of our presence in conversations we have with others, uh, I would invite us to think about um, what it means to make a conscious decision, hold an intention of speaking what is alive, what feels present and emergent in the moment, that there's time to be putting forth an agenda there's time to speaking in a way that achieves a result, but there's also an opportunity to give voice to some things that emerge in us spontaneously. And we might sometimes surprise ourselves with what comes out. And I think related to that is the opportunity to listen to the next thing that is kind of offered in a conversation, the way you might listen in nature to notice that when we're with others, we shift away from how we listen to the waves at the beach or the sound of the wind and the rustling leaves of a tree. You know, we don't have to agree or disagree with the wave to, to learn about the surf or, or, or with the, the wind. We can take it in and listen to understand with, with real curiosity and a real willingness to have a, a deeper um, engagement with that thing that we're hearing and seeing and setting that intention to listen beyond our opinions, beyond the need to agree or disagree or have a stance at all, um, enables us to maybe hear something and see something that we didn't know was there and that will be a more direct experience 
of those we encounter. In doing that, I think the relationships that can emerge and the conversations that can happen can be fresh and new and full of potential for growth. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jerry. Um, if folks want to learn more, want to connect with you, what's the best way to to get in touch and find out more? I know I saw a video that you had done a number of years back. It's very moving, and it sounds like you've done a few more. So how can folks be in touch? The best way to learn about us is the website, which is centerforcouncil.org. Um, the new website is beyondusandthem.org, and both of those are now emergent. But Center for Council is where you'll find not only, I think you're referring to Cops and Communities Circling Up, which is a, a little film we did when we brought together graduates of these programs. We have some remarkable videos of law enforcement, police officers, LAPD officers talking about their experience of being in these huddles. And we've got a lot of the evaluation work, if folks are interested in the research behind this and some of the other ways we've been talking to healthcare providers about depersonalization and burnout with physicians and nurses and in schools to re really reinforce uh, social emotional uh, learning uh, platforms, restorative justice, et cetera. I think that that website is the best. If folks want to grab a copy of the book, Where Compassion Begins, that's going to give a little more background. Um, but if there are thoughts or ideas or questions or concerns, I would invite anybody to reach out to me through the website and I'd be happy to engage. I really have so much gratitude for all the great work that's being done. Many of the folks who are participating in, in this summit for sure are, are doing some remarkable, powerful work and I'm I'm grateful for it. I, I so appreciate learning about it and in as much as we can ally with folks and share resources, I'm always eager to do that. So I invite folks to reach out through the website or, or however and, and get in touch. We have, as I mentioned, there are ways to drop into a council online, to come to a council training, to learn about it, and we'd be happy to kind of uh, share best practice to the extent that we can. All right, Jerry, well, thank you very much. Be well. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.